1: Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to take you beneath the surface level and cover traditional personal finance topics in a way that is both approachable and relatable, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host.
2: Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about investing. More specifically, we're talking about the importance of constructing an investment portfolio with an actual end goal in mind to avoid ending up with a random mashup of investments that don't actually have any connection or correlation to each other down the line. Investing is a way to grow your money over time and secure your financial future. And when you invest without a clear plan, you're more likely to make decisions based on emotions rather than logic. You may be tempted to buy a stock because it's the latest hot trend or sell a stock because you're afraid of losing money. However, when you invest with a purpose, you have a plan in place that guides your investment decisions, and thus you're less likely to make impulsive decisions that can lead to unnecessary financial losses. Investing with a purpose also means having a clear understanding of your financial goals and investing accordingly, and it requires taking the time to evaluate your financial situation your willingness and capacity to take financial risk, more on that later, and your overall objectives for the capital you plan to put to work. It's not about chasing the latest investment fad or trying to beat the market in the short term. Instead, it's about creating a plan and investing in a way that maximizes your chances of success. My guest, Jessica Inskip, is the Director of Education and Product for Options Play, a platform designed to assist retail investors to find ideas and explore and analyze option strategies. Prior to joining Options Play, Jessica held various positions within the brokerage industry across multiple firms, including roles specializing in high frequency trading, complex options and derivative strategies, and the relationship management of high net worth, affluent investors. Ultimately, Jessica's passion is in creating education and making it accessible to all. So, with that brief introduction, welcome Jessica Inskip to the Tech Money Podcast.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for the engaging conversation.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you making the time to do this. So I breezed through your resume pretty quickly in my intro. What else should I have included?
3: Yeah. So I definitely have had that non-traditional journey. I will say the vast majority of my career was at Merrill, where my job was actually to, um, it was called the director of the engaged trader strategy. So my job was to make sure that everything complex or advanced was taken care of from the front end perspective, from the back end perspective, down to the curated client experiences from who you talk to, backend capabilities, what you see, data, so on and so forth. And that role lent me a lot of exposure to a lot of different folks across the bank, but also across the industry that really led to my career path and, and how we met.
2: Yeah, so your time and my time at Merrill probably overlapped quite a bit. So that means that I might have been reading your research and just didn't know who this Jessica person was as a footnote at the very bottom of the the white paper.
3: It's quite possible.
2: (laughs) So as you mentioned that, and one other thing I just thought about that should be in there that, you know, is your investment research is used by the likes of one Jim Cramer on Mad Money. So it's not like you're new to this, right? So you mentioned the majority of your career you spent at Merrill doing this kind of work in the background. But realistically, you're now out in the forefront, I guess is the word to use, because people can see your smiling face on TV talking about the markets. And also you're contributing to shows that are constantly talking about what's happening in the markets and that sort of thing.
3: Yeah. I loved joining panels with you as well. And it's honestly really new for me. I've been doing this for almost 15 years, but I've never shown my face. So, that's actually been a challenge I've had to overcome, but a welcome challenge. I really enjoy it and that nerd in me being able to share that with the world is something that really excites me. And the fact that Jim picked up my technical analysis yeah. was something amazing I never knew would happen.
2: It's a very big Not that you necessarily are looking for anybody else's approval, but it's a very big, in my opinion, ego boost that a person who spends that much time getting pitched on, hey, please look at my opinion on X, Y, and Z, actually decides to say, hey, you know what? This person actually knows what they're talking about. Let me dig a little deeper into this one out of 50 million who are constantly sending me their analysis on whatever.
3: So I definitely felt privileged. I uh... Had a little tear in my eye. And if you know me, <laughs> that doesn't happen often. So.
2: <laughs> so I know that you consider yourself a technician when it comes to market analysis, right? That means you rely on patterns and historical market trends to make inferences, I guess, is the word about where you know the market is likely to go next. Do you believe this type of analysis makes trading easier for average people or is it not recommended that regular people try this at home. And by this, I mean technical analysis specifically.
3: Yeah, I really think technical analysis that could be applied by anyone, including retail investors at home. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that I look at technical analysis is the fundamentals or what you're taught is that the market prices in new information as it comes in meaning that we have an adjustment to CPI or all of a sudden a bank collapse. The market's going to react accordingly, but you can find areas of supply or demand, which are just consistent areas where the stock seems to stop or start in the most layman terms that give you an idea of just entry and exit points but also divergence in the long run. So charting on purely an hourly basis or a short-term time frame mm-hmm. that's a dangerous game. That's not giving you enough of a picture. But if you have a process just like you do with fundamental analysis with charting, it all works in harmony, but it always starts with education and understanding and layering on your overall process.
2: Yeah, I consider myself a fundamentalist. Charting is Primarily because I believe technical analysis takes all the fun out of investing. That's the way I'll say it. And I don't mean that to be like a knock against your approach, but like literally I just don't have the brain for it. Like I want investing to actually be interesting and fun because yes, in addition to making money, like I wanted to actually like, and there are the people who are very, very big math nerds that love being able to capture that one sweet spot in the momentum of the trading day that's their window. And then there's the people like me that care more about what Satya Nadella had for breakfast today and what that tells us about where Microsoft stock is likely to go versus all the other things we could pay attention to in reality. And I'm being like, facetious in in describing it that way, I should say, for the record, just in case anybody starts to dig into what CEOs eat for breakfast. But you know what I mean, like digging into the financials and listening to the stories.
3: Good management habit. Absolutely.
2: Right. Listening to the stories as the thing that tells you whether there's an opportunity there or not, like that to me is more interesting. But I also love that that's what makes a market. Like everybody has a different approach.
3: Yeah. I think there's harmony and balance. And I've always found that either you lean more fundamental or you lean more technical. But ideally, if you can find balance in both and have a process, then you really, really make it fun there.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as long as you're making money, that's where the fun usually comes from. And so, you know, so true. to each their own. But so since this is the place tech workers come to get smarter about their money, right? One of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is that you, along with your company, pride yourself on educating retail investors about things like downside risk and even go as far as to teach people how to limit risk using options, which is not common. And since many of our listeners tend to be high-earning tech professionals who are very heavy on math and logic in their day jobs, like I was talking about before, make someone a good technician, they also tend to gravitate toward the excitement of trading options. So want to get your take on the prevalence of options trading and the mainstreaming of it through online brokerages like Robinhood, for example. They've eliminated a lot of the barriers that used to exist for investors looking to trade options. What's your take on that?
3: Yeah, I think it started as a fad, to be honest. So Robinhood just had a really good marketing mechanism and they really captured with that democratizing finance tagline that they had. They captured the younger generation, which kind of all goes together, the puzzle in my mind. The way the younger generation started with the gamma squeeze and GameStop and the Reddit forums and Wall Street bets, they got kind of addicted to that adrenaline rush and then found that again through options. And it makes sense. If you pull some of the OCC data, you'll see that options are trading at record volumes month over month and it keeps increasing. And then those volumes keep skewing towards zero days till expiration options. So the options that you can literally trade for one day. Mm -hmm. Now, I preface that with saying the adrenaline rush, because that's not the way that we teach options. That is really putting probabilities not in your favor. And the beauty of options is you do add a layer of complexity, absolutely, because you add an expiration date and different premium or pricing factors that make up an options price in addition to the underlying security stock index whatever your underlying asset is. yeah. So you can actually profit if you layer and understand everything correctly in a bearish market, in a neutral market, in a bullish market. There's just a little more risk and complexities and layers that you have to add on to your process due to the complexities that options offer. But it's grown in popularity with a lens because of Robinhood. But there's always been very conservative or long-term strategies that you can use to enhance your existing portfolio that's been used for many years.
2: Well, even to that point, right? Robinhood, and I keep using them as the example, but obviously there's plenty of online brokerages that have unleashed options trading to the masses. But it was once upon a time you had to hire a fund manager To invest into a long short fund or invest into some sort of fund with an options overlay or whatever it was, was the only way that you got access. And then once upon a time, way back in the day when I was at Merrill Lynch, you'll probably remember the amount of paperwork it used to take for a client to sign To say that they understood all the risk involved with options trading, and it probably took anywhere from two to four weeks to get all the paperwork signed and submitted and processed and approved and whatever else to get their account finally released to trade options on their own inside of that account. And then someone like a Robinhood does away with all of that and says, you know, disclaimers, disclosures, and warnings be damned. Like the people want it, we're going to give them access to it. And so, to some degree, I'm with you, that it democratizes options trading in that regard, like allows people to do what they want to do without a lot of barriers in the middle. But then I also think about the additional risk involved. And I can't help but be concerned that, you know, things like the social engineering component of some of these trading platforms, in addition to the thrill of options, just too much at once for folks that don't necessarily completely understand the risks involved.
3: I completely agree. There was, just thinking about the events of Robinhood, so they've Mm -hmm. gotten a couple of really big fines for misinformation and going into that a little bit too quickly. And I think it's just amplified with the younger generation because the access to options education was minuscule. And so Mm -hmm. they found it in what I like to call TikTok University, which is a dangerous place (laughs) for at least the finance world. And then if you think about the FINRA rules, it's FINRA rule 2210 and 2220. So 2210 is just communications for anyone with a 7. And then 2220 is the options communications specifically. Say the word options, you got a layer of scrutiny and complexity in every aspect. Meaning though, if you're licensed and you have the ability to talk about options, you're actually forbidden from doing that on a mass scale. Mm-hmm. And it's not, not the brokerage firm's fault. It's literally just because that's what the rules say. The rules say if you're putting out a piece of content and you're registered as under a broker dealer, even in the self-directed capacity, so with the 7 or 63 and 66, anything you post that has to do with the stock market has to be reviewed by your registered principal or supervisory of some sort within your firm, but therefore it's forbidden because that's just a lot of work to review all of those posts. But if you think about that, that means that everyone who was teaching options Mm -hmm. in the social space probably didn't have a license to do so. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, amplified issues and misinformation and people trading, learning things reactively rather than proactively. And that's honestly the challenge that the options industry is facing right now and something that we take very seriously at options play and why we tend to teach at literally every single brokerage firm and show those best practices and the way to get in front of those issues that you learn the hard way. And it's really using options for the long term. That's the more sustainable, responsible growth, if you will.
2: This is not at all the direction I expected this conversation to go, but since I have you here and I know that you read FINRA rules over breakfast, I will take advantage of the opportunity to ask you this question. Because in a previous episode with a guest, Manning Field, I was having a conversation with him about the fact that folks like us, who are registered principals among all the other different terms that they use to describe professionals in the financial services industry, who have somebody to answer to, whether it's FINRA or somebody else, We don't live in the spaces that the younger masses seek to find information and guidance on investing, whether it's trading individual stocks, whether it's just how to build a portfolio from scratch by buying ETFs or trading options or anything else. Because of all of the different regulations you just described and 50,000 pages of additional ones, We don't live online in these places at TikTok University. I don't even have a TikTok page. Like, we're not in the place where the people who need the information go to get it. And because we're not there, somebody's there. And the somebody who is there, to your point, is somebody who either has learned along the way and is still making mistakes real time or hasn't actually done the thing they're advising the masses about. And they're just there making noise and taking up space. And either way, it's a bit of the blind leading the blind. But we can't necessarily criticize, but so much because you and I don't spend time giving out what we consider to be quality financial advice on TikTok. And so there's this disconnect that I don't know how we close that gap.
3: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this one. (laughs) I like the way this is going. So that's absolutely fine. So I used to call it the battle of the influencer when I was working at Merrill. and We're trying to come up with a strategy, but you can't compete with people who have hooks on all social media platforms, not only on TikTok, Let's say, mm-hmm. watch me turn $500 into $10,000 in 30 mm-hmm. minutes. That is unrealistic and highly illegal from a brokerage <laughs> perspective. No one's going to say that. However that tends to be the most baited and hooked in and watched videos. And what I think we're seeing as trend is is people started with that and it's easy to make money in a bull market and we're not in a bull market anymore. So that thesis is certainly being challenged and then it's gravitating towards different type of, even social media or, or niche areas. So I did actually start a TikTok. I did in November last year.
2: You're a lot more with it than I am.
3: Oh, I had to have my 12-year-old son explain how to do certain things, which was very humbling moments (laughs) for me. (laughs) Um, Definitely. However, I found it very interesting. There's a hunger for learning. There's a hunger for education. They really want to understand. And you can tell they're sick of those get-rich-quick type of social media content that they're used to. And this all goes back to, I think it really is a puzzle putting together is Robinhood. They mm-hmm, attracted mm-hmm. that younger investor and they actually had a huge problem with attrition. Their newer clients would continuously leave and that's because they graduated mm. from the basics. They needed more bells and whistles that were required to do your research, whether it's fundamental or technical. And also when you're adding on you utilizing options for income rather than just gambling in directional place. And so they're naturally graduating that happened with the brokerage firms that they used. And now I think that's happening with the the content creators and the social platforms. There is a new one and I'm not sponsored or plugging anything, but I found it and I thought it was cool because now that I'm on TikTok, I get asked to do stuff all the time. Yeah. And I honestly say no most of the time, yeah. actually all of the time. But there was one that came up. It's called Zed. Super cool. It solves the problem. You're not allowed to post on there unless you're invited. Okay. And it also sorts by symbol or by macro or by purely education. And then you can pull up all of the stock details about it. Mm. It's like a little security profile. So, like investing.com meets TikTok, but with vetted people. Yeah. I think stuff like that might emerge, but we'll see.
2: I think this is the time that it emerges to. To your point, we're no longer in a bull market where a high tide is raising all boats. And so there's a lot more patience out there where I was getting messages from people literally asking, what can I invest in today that will double my money in 30 days? Again, you know, to your point, those are the messages I tend to ignore on Twitter and everywhere else anyway. But like that was the emotion that was running hot at that time. And that has cooled down a lot, which means that people are a lot more willing to look for places like you're talking about with more vetted and trusted experts in the place. But something else you said made me think of this question that I want to lay out there to you, which is how do I know when I've graduated, to use your term, right? How do I know it's time to level up and start to move into more complex trades, such as options as an example, but not necessarily just options? Yeah, so I think
3: it's, that personal growth development on so many levels is maybe you start in the stock market from, at least on a self-directed point of view, I think the most common way is you've had a 401k somewhere, mm-hmm. you were stuck in mutual funds, you've left your job, and now you end up rolling that over into an IRA. Then it sits in cash because you don't realize you have to do something with it. Then you might move to ETFs, then you go to stocks. And then it normally happens once you start collecting dividends and you want to add an income stream. There are two ways. We tend to categorize options traders in two separate buckets. So the Mm -hmm. journey that I just described to you is that income investor, that long-term investor. And sometimes you fall in both. I, I trade both, mainly because I work with options every single day. So you have that income investor, which is where you just enhance your stock portfolio. You participate in capital appreciation but you are collecting premiums as your stock goes up in value and there's a lot we can talk about there and then the other side is where this is where the graduation comes from from the younger generation is you're starting by buying calls and puts mm-hmm. which means you can only capitalize on a directional play that is very strategically timed mm-hmm. And then you start researching, look at education, and then you find that there's other ways to utilize options. And then you end up shifting over normally to the income side, or you graduate and understand capping upwards potential, reducing cost, and all of the other best practices that we teach with options.
2: So funny enough, when I get people that ask the question, whether it's clients in my day job as a financial planner or friends who just know what I do for a living so they ask me questions or somewhere in between, people will ask, hey, should I be investing in options? And I immediately ask them back, for what purpose? And they look at me like, I'm crazy, but I literally mean like, what is the specific goal that you have in mind for trading options? Because as you just laid out, there's a bunch of different strategies that you can employ, but each of them is designed to solve a different problem. And so until you're clear on what you even want to do, right? So some of our clients, for example, very high earning tech workers that work for companies they don't ever intend to leave or they don't ever intend to sell the stock that they own, right? So very easily that person's writing covered calls on stock they intend to own forever. So their intention is just to collect some income along the way Mm -hmm. from options that are going to keep expiring because the stock is supposed to only go up and to the right right? And if it doesn't, not the end of the world because they already own the stock and they can turn around and sell it to make whole on the contract, right? Or there's the folks that don't own a share of stock, period, but they're trading the options knowing that if they get caught, they will have the means to go and buy the stock to make good on that contract and whatever. There's all the different ways that you can approach this, but without actually having a plan to get back to the point of the episode in the first place, if you don't actually have a plan and a goal in mind of what you're even putting these dollars to work to do. You're really just throwing darts at a dartboard, which is what I come across more than often. I look at someone's portfolio and they've got eight different accounts between all the different online brokerages that all have their different hooks and marketing and gimmicks and whatever. And there's a lot of the hodgepodge of just stuff that's happening. Or they're now, in most cases, accounts that are just dormant. And they were exciting once upon a time when everybody was doing it and it was the thing and GameStop was going to the moon. And now it's kind of just like, yeah, that's an account that I don't do anything with and it just has cash sitting in there waiting on something to do. Right. And so my whole focus in there is like helping people understand that each account that you put dollars into should be intended to serve some purpose. You're putting these dollars to work in the market, expecting that you're going to be able to earn more on it than you would by putting those dollars in a savings account, but also that they're going to help you do something at a future date that you're going to want to have additional dollars in that account to do later on down the road, right? But until we get clear on what the thing actually is, you can't even give anybody good advice on, What they should be doing or what strategy they should be employing.
3: I completely agree. And I love the way you frame that question. I, I might borrow that one, but we always say, What is your sentiment? What's your goal? And I think that's extremely important with trading options. Just like you said, there's so many different things that they can do, they can give you leverage. They can provide income. But a lot of that also has to do with risk tolerance because you're adding a lot of complexities and you can put yourself in an unlimited risk position. So it's really important to understand. And if you have those, those clients who have shares that they may not intend to sell, you're selling a covered call, you're creating an obligation to sell those shares at an agreed price at any time during a timeframe, which means that will create a taxable event. So that's also something to be extremely aware of if you're dealing with a lot of securities that you're putting aside as collateral.
2: So let's talk about that R word for a second. Any recommendations on how to determine your own risk profile as an investor? And I'm intentionally using the word profile here because, you know, we often talk about risk tolerance, but it's also important to consider whether you have the capacity to take on that risk, right, as well as all the other things we're discussing here.
3: Yeah. So this is more broader investing and say outside of options. With options, there's definitely another layer. The way that I've always viewed as far as your risk profile is skill, will, and time. Mm -hmm. That's definitely first and foremost, which will let you know if you're going to do it yourself or outsource it like a three-pronged stool. If you don't have the skill, the will, or the time, you cannot do it yourself, period. So that's certainly step one. Then as far as risk tolerance, I mean, there's so much that goes into that that you're honestly going to be better at than me, where we talk about when you need the funds for your income, things of that nature. But when we drill it onto options and we layer on a trading aspect and we intend to trade early and often, by often, I mean maybe one or two times a month, not every single day. This is Mm -hmm. not day trading. But when you add on that trading aspect, it's the way that you equate risk on a portfolio level and then also on your options level. Meaning I've got my entire portfolio. Our rule of thumb is you don't risk more than 2% of your portfolio within one trade because it's very possible that you're going to lose 100% of that trade Mm -hmm. at any time. So if you do the math on that 2% over 2%, it's easier to overcome those losses. Adding on the other layer, when we're trading directionally, the way that we layer options because we we know options are priced differently because of inflated value due to uncertainty and then the time component aspect in addition to the underlying security.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So when we're buying, we want to make sure that we can make at least three times than what we've purchased within okay. that time frame. And then on the sell side, it's actually the inverse. You want to collect about 30% of the width or it's a three to one because the probabilities are more in your favor. And that's a very, very long conversation. But Meaning, to answer your question, there's a rule of thumb as far as how much asset allocation you should put up for one trade. And then there's also a rule of thumb for the skewing risk versus reward in your favor for Mm. every single trade that you do to make sure that you don't blow up your account.
0: Yeah.
2: I've heard options traders mention that more than anything. It's the fact that it's not, I want a one-for-one return on my investment and time and everything else. It's I want a three to one, four to one, five to one skewing in my favor. Otherwise, for taking on that outsized amount of risk, it's not even worth the effort. And so I'm hearing that in what you were just describing as well. And I should also point out that what you just described gets at the heart of the words, the phrasing that I use, which was risk capacity. So that 2% threshold that you mentioned is important in determining whether you actually have the financial capacity to take on the additional risk that we're talking about in a portfolio. And if the answer is no, that's okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with owning the underlying security by itself or even an index until you get to a place where you've amassed the additional reserves that you need to CYA to get into the deeper waters in the first place. But I've never heard the phrasing you just used, skill, will, and time. Mm. I am actually going to end up stealing that from you at some point, and I hope I remember to give you attribution, but just you've been forewarned I'm going to end up using that one. That's a really good way to describe it, and also like the reason that I personally don't trade options. Uh, One, because trading is a pain because of all of the different regulatory hoops that we have to jump through to place one trade in this world, Mm -hmm. but also the time. Like, I just don't have the time that it takes to make sure that I'm not missing my open window or I don't have an option that's expiring before I get a chance to check in and do the thing I know I need to do, which is why I can be honest with myself and say, if I am going to ever trade options, I have to have somebody do it for me or I have to be living a completely different life than the one that I live right now because- between the hours of 9.30 and 4, I'm not sitting still enough to be able to take advantage of those tight trading opportunities that pop up throughout the day.
3: Yeah, we always learn something from each other. So I love the dynamic. But I do want to caveat with with what I described is the trading aspect of options. Mm -hmm. There is that other side, which is purely enhancing long-term portfolios. So Just the same way that you'd use a limit order to buy and sell a stock. You can Mm -hmm. use the obligations found within options to buy and sell a stock. We call it the wheel strategy. Very common income producing, but still takes a little additional time because you have the expiration date attached.
2: So is there a particular type of person or personality type who you think is most suited to trading options successfully? Uh, A bit of a loaded question, I know, but.
3: You know because I work with a lot of brokerage firms that have a lot of data and analytics that are going through my mind that I know the most common job that if anyone trading options, and it actually is an engineer, Mm -hmm. which is very interesting. But that comes to the conclusion that you're more successful if you start with education, because there's Mm -hmm. complexities Mm -hmm. that you have to understand how they work. And once you understand that, I truly believe knowledge is power, then you of course, can really understand all the probabilities and possibilities, find the optimal environment and stick to a more strategic, disciplined approach. All investment decisions, period, should be calm, collected, and calculated when you are buying a home, you've got to go through a process because you're required to, unless you've got a huge Mm -hmm. bit of cash. But even then, you're still going to have to go through a process and you're deciding, am I going to be there for a long time? Am I going to rent? Maybe this is something that will create a dual income at some point. You're thinking about all of that. And that's because there is a process designed for you to think about that. There is with investing and even more so with options trading.
2: I think that's a good descriptor and the fact I hate to say cold in calculating because it sounds sort of like I'm describing a person's personality specifically. And what I really mean is the way their brain functions. Mm-hmm. Engineers do tend to be very good about killing bad ideas because the calculation just doesn't work. And it doesn't work not by a super wide delta, but it doesn't work by some very minute fraction of a percent that's outside of the parameters that we set. And so we kill it. Where most people whose brains are wired differently say, well, I can always make an exception here because dot, dot, dot. And engineers are very good about saying, no, no exception. It doesn't fit in the parameters and so got to go. But I suppose the better question would have been whether you think there's a type of person who should not be trading options. And again, that might be the even more loaded question than the one I initially asked you.
3: Oh, I definitely think it's the easier one, to be (laughs) honest. If you are trading options, first and foremost, you shouldn't trade with funds that you're not willing to lose. That's extremely important. A lot of times, and most people who actually trade options, because again, work with all the brokerage firms, it's not their primary source of trading. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's for fun or to enhance a portfolio, but they still have their nest egg, which is their retirement funds that's attached to their overall goals and they'll have a portion of their account. Um, Normally it's an 80-20 and that 20% is where they'll trade options a little more actively or have more longer term options on this 80% side. So the person who shouldn't trade it is someone who hasn't taken those appropriate steps that you should with investing overall. So Mm -hmm. the debt management management. In addition to saving for your retirement and your goals. And then once you've got that under control, then you can graduate, it's the word we're going to use again, into options trading that can enhance your portfolio. That way you can fully understand it, but you're not risking something that's going to be absolutely detrimental to the wealth that you've built.
2: So let me tack on to that because I gave my own perspective initially around like my concern around options being Not even the risk that's inherent in it itself, but, you know, to me, if I choose to invest using options, like, I'm aware of by that point that I'm taking on more risk than owning the stock itself or some other security outright. At least I hope that that's, like, obvious to people who are trading options. But I'm instead concerned about how it can take a person's focus off of what actually matters, right, which is the thing or the purpose or the goal they were investing for in the first place, like I keep saying, whether it's to actually make a major purchase down the line or have a rainy day fund or something else, right? It's important to keep in mind the reason you're putting these dollars to work and the reason you're putting these dollars at risk. Do you have a recommendation as far as like a minimum amount of time a person should be thinking about investing their funds, right? Like we're talking about the profile of what you need to have in place before you decide to go down this road. You know, because then otherwise, like you should just be putting those dollars into a high yield savings account or something like what's that time frame in your mind?
3: So, I think that's personal as far as the individual that's investing, because the time frame is something that you're going to take into account for your overall retirement and so on and so forth. I think it's when you're ready to trade stocks. Let me rephrase that. I know it's when you're ready to trade stocks where there is an option alternative that Mm -hmm. equates to literally the same exact amount of risk dollar for dollar and that's when you're ready in a way to bring on options to enhance your portfolio but again there's that layer of complexity and just mm-hmm. that small amount of understanding that you have to overcome but you can I mean, that that's literally how i buy and sell stocks is selling a cash covered put when you sell a put a cash covered put that means the money that you have to set aside to buy 100 shares of that stock, you have to use as collateral for that put. Mm -hmm. You sell that put for a premium. So say it's $5 for $100 per share. Say it's just ABC for easy compliance-friendly purposes. And you can buy that stock that the strike price says $100, which means I'm obligated to buy at $100 per share if it moves Adversely, which is down. Mm-hmm. But now think about that. If ABC is at 100 at the stock market now, it's priced at the market, and I have a put that obligates me to buy it at 100, but I got $5 for that. Mm-hmm. I've reduced my substantial risk potential of $100 per share because that's the most that we can lose when we buy a stock. It's what we've invested by that $5 premium. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way that you can use options for a longer term as that entry and exit point. So selling a put to buy the stock collect a premium, reduces your overall risk exposure, which is just your funds spent, if you will. Now, there is an additional risk. I think it's important because it sounds really, really great on the surface. Yep. Upside risk. If you buy the ABC stock, you now have unlimited gain potential, right? However, if you sell a cash-covered put, it recognizes its maximum profit, quote-unquote, when it expires worthless. So it's actually taking the obligations of contracts and them not having any value you capitalize on because you sold it. But if you are obligated to buy at 100 and then ABC was to rally above 105, you're not going to participate in that capital appreciation. So there is upside risk there.
2: The upside risk and what you just described is the opportunity cost. My concern is the inverse usually when folks are talking about getting into options. It's the fact that there's an uncapped loss in some cases. That you've got to be prepared for and aware of that, you know, the average person doesn't necessarily know they're getting into until they're getting that capital call or even worse, a margin call that suddenly makes you aware of just how bad that position can go. But again, not to keep adding so much of a dark cloud here, because to your point that you've been making this entire time, there are some really great things that can happen through trading options through adding exposure to options to your broader portfolio if done properly and actually taking the right steps in advance to make sure that you actually know what you're getting yourself into. And what I was thinking about as we're having this conversation, you've been doing this a little bit longer than I have even, and so I imagine that people who know what you do for a living are constantly asking you for your advice on things that you probably don't even have any interest in or purview over, but they know that you work in finance, they know that you know about the markets, and so they ask you anyway. So my question to you in there is, just whenever somebody asks me personally how to get started building a portfolio from scratch, I usually tell them something like, just buy into an index that allows you to capture you know, a lot of the investing universe first, right? Something like the SPY or Vanguard Total Stock Market or whatever. And then once they've built up enough there, you know, say five or maybe $10,000, they should start to look for individual names they feel good about, you know, longer than 12 months down the road. What's your go-to advice in that situation?
3: Oh, it's literally exactly the same thing. Oh, okay. view. <laughs> It's literally identical, actually. Okay because that's the best way if you're you're starting to invest, you know, dollar cost averaging is absolutely the best way to grow wealth over time.
2: See, I thought you might give me some sort of like elementary options strategy that I might be able to overlay in there that gets my feet wet but doesn't I don't lose my shirt kind of thing.
3: Well, that is the cash covered put cuz the worst thing that happens in this scenario is you buy the stock at the strike yeah. price and you can't lose same equivalent. And you can do that with SPY or VOO. It's literally if do were to take a snapshot in time versus saying, okay, you're going to buy a hundred shares of SPY now or a hundred shares of VOO now, and you sell the cash covered put. It is the equivalent risk potential to the downside.
2: Yeah. And I should also point out that people don't usually like that advice, right? It sounds too boring, but the reality oh, yeah. is right. Successful investing generally is boring. Even in certain option strategies that you're literally buying and letting the options expire is your best case scenario, like it's meant to be boring and that discipline and the ability to like block out the noise
3: Absolutely. is what so
2: true. brings the dollars your way. So, you know, for whatever that's worth, but usually when I say that people just like, I can see their faces. They immediately stop listening because it wasn't what they were expecting. So to that end though, as we're talking about like portfolio construction Personally, how you approach the markets, right? You're still pretty young. Do you invest in fixed income at all? Or, or maybe I should ask, like, do you recommend fixed income investing to younger investors?
3: Uh, I definitely do right now because of interest rates. And it certainly makes sense. It's going to outperform the market from a broader perspective in the short term. But I've always, even though I trade options, that is a different type of investor. So going even back to your, previous comment or previous questions and conversation, if someone's trading for the first time, you won't even be permitted to trade options. And you're never going to throw that complexity at someone Mm -hmm. because it's going to immediately scare them away. And I think maybe even some people are, I think, getting into the market for the first time with I-bonds. And that's great. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And that's a wonderful time to do that. So Yes, it's important and that's part of diversification overall, that it certainly helps your portfolio. I mean, from an options perspective, we take it more from a trading view, so trading DLT or, or something like that. However, just from the fixed income itself, that's something. My husband definitely does that. I won't give him investment advice. <laughs> my son does as well. He's been picking stocks since he was four years old and, and actually it's a really great performing portfolio, which is a whole hmm. other topic.
2: <laughs> okay. We're going to have to talk about that one because I need to know for my little one, like you're going to have to teach me. So we'll come back to that one.
3: So many, but meaning, yeah, fixed income's a great asset that you can use to enhance your portfolio. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I ask that from the perspective of a person who's 35 and has a pretty healthy risk appetite. Like, I have zero interest in owning fixed income. I'm okay with the big daily moves of the stock market, though. I should couch this by saying that. But I do also own REITs as a bond surrogate, right? Since REITs move on slightly different information from stocks and they pay interest payments regardless of market performance, Like, I consider that enough to a bond to help diversify some of the risk inherent, you know, in that portfolio. But I'm always shocked too when I talk to folks who are like 30, 40 years old who have like a 60, 40 asset allocation. And I'm always curious like how they got there, like how they derive their allocation mix. So anyway, so my last question actually has nothing to do with, probably has nothing to do with options. And I imagine has nothing to do with, options play. So you can kind of take that hat off and relax your shoulders for a second. But let's say for a moment, you never found your passion for educating investors just in general. So you had to find a different way to occupy your days, but money wasn't a factor in your decision-making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now?
3: Oh, that's such a hard, hard question. Cause I literally haven't been doing this my entire career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually talk to people about this quite a bit. So I'm going to give you a a different answer as far as some of the people that I I mentor, people who've mentored me that I'm happy to share, is I think it's important to know what you're good at and what you like and marry those two together. And also staying very true to my values. I think that's important as well. And that's honestly how I ended up in the position that I am in because I've... There's a lot that you can do in finance. And so that leads me back to some type of education at some point. I find my most happiness when I am taking a complex topic and really layering it down. And I mean, going into data and spreadsheets and explaining it, literally taking hours just to pull all the information to explain it in 15 or 20 minutes. yeah, And that to me is creating something. I have to have that creative side. I don't know what that would translate to. I've translated it definitely to finance, but something in that nature is definitely what I would be doing.
2: I guess the fact that it's so tough to even answer that question tells you you're probably where you're supposed to be as a way to think about it. I'll take that. <laughs> well, awesome. I appreciate you making the time to do this, Jessica. This was great and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or Play after this goes live?
3: Yeah, and thank you for the invite. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. I am on TikTok and all over social media. There is a link tree with all of the proper links because unfortunately there is a lot of imposter me's out there. But you can go to optionsplay.com. Our education is free to attend. There's a lot of that if you want to check it out. And just understand options or explore it. So it's optionsplay.com. And then again, most active, honestly, on Twitter.
2: Awesome. Well, listeners, this has been yet another episode of the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform. That way, you'll be alerted immediately each week when a new episode is released. Maybe even consider sharing the link to this week's episode with your friends and colleagues. And if you really liked what you heard, be sure to leave a review. This will help make sure that more people just like you are able to find the show organically. You may connect with me, your host, on social at Malcolm On Money, and feel free to send us any questions, comments, or kudos to podcast at tech-money.com. That email again is podcast at tech-money.com. And as always, we hope that this episode of the Tech Money Podcast has helped to make you just a little bit smarter about your money.
1: This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out tech-money.com. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is tech-money.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing, and the sound controls powered by Tech Money, LLC. Thank you for listening.
0: we you